Right, good morning. Thank you very much for getting up early and coming to the Groucho Club. I'm Julia Hobsbawm from Editorial Intelligence. I'm going to uh, thank both HarperCollins and the PRCA, the Public Relations Consultants Association, for uh, partnering with us on this event. What is this event? Well, I always described out of conference season the fact that these are supposed to be designed to be as animated and interesting as political party conference fringe events without actually having to go into the bun fight that is the political party conference season. But given the events of this week, I was wondering whether we should in fact rename this event, Does the Labour Party Make More Celebrities Than It Breaks? <laughs> but that is not the title of this morning. Um, I'm going to hand over to Siobhan Kenny in a moment from HarperCollins, just to tell you very briefly one of the reasons why we wanted to put on this event, because normally we tend to take slightly more policy-led questions such as what, can, um, what will be the legacy of the Olympics, which is the next event up that we're doing with the Independent. But we realised that part of our raison d'etre at Editorial Intelligence is to celebrate, if you like, the celebrity status that the commentators in the media have, the commentariat. And so it did seem appropriate to put on an event looking at the, at the very specific popular topic of celebrity. So on that note, um, I'm about to hand over to Siobhan Kenny, who will then hand straight to our marvellous chair, Peter York. Now, Peter is a celebrity management consultant under the guise of Peter Wallace, and he's also Mr. Peter York, known for his many books and articles and TV programmes, etc. I particularly like his book on dictators' homes, which I commend to you, over and above his series on admin and his various columns and... Um, of course, cooler, faster, more expensive, the return of the Sloan Ranger. So on that plug for Peter, who will lead us through proceedings in a minute, here is Siobhan Kenny, our sponsor, partner, uh, communications director of HarperCollins. Thanks, Julia. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks again for Julia for hosting this event. Um, I must say, in the midst of time, Julia and I were discussing perhaps something about celebrity um, in this sort of forum. And Julia is so clever that she actually made me think it was her idea. But she made me think it was my idea. And in fact, uh, I think it was all hers because she was in fact pitching this to me. So there, great success because here I am. Um, very sadly, Dylan Jones can't be with us this morning. I'm um, afraid his daughter's ill, but um, he did ask us to send on his apologies. Um, he's probably better known to you as the editor-in-chief of GQ. But to us at HarperCollins, of course, he's known as the editor of his fantastic new book, uh, the author of his fantastic new book called Cameron on Cameron. So there we are. There's another book plug, which uh, I wouldn't be a book publisher if I didn't do that. Um, I did, in fact, speak to Dylan yesterday to see if there was anything he wanted to say to this august gathering. And uh, he thought for a long time, I thought, oh, better, better, this is going to be good, because he's obviously uh, pondering his words here. Better get a pencil, make sure I write it down. He said, yeah, I think there's one thing I would really, really like to say to this audience, and that is, um, could you buy my book, please? It's called Cameron on Cameron, it's by Dylan Jones. So there we are. I think he's going to go far, you know? He's, uh, he's obviously got something there. Um, I've not been working in the world of book publishing for very long, but one of the things that kind of blew me away about HarperCollins, and I'm sure the same goes for lots of our competitors, is the sheer scale of publishing. So everything from maps, atlases, to J.G. Ballard, 
Doris Lessing, and indeed to celebrity authors such as Gordon Ramsay, Gok Wan, and many other people I'm sure we'll be talking about later on. Now, like many people in this room, I've probably attended lots and lots of award ceremonies, uh, as uh, we in the media like to, like to blow our own trumpets every now and then, and they're usually at Grosvenor House, and indeed the first one I went to for the book industry called the Nibbies was at Grosvenor House. Um, the one thing I really loved about it was that sitting on this table, waiting nervously to see whether she was going to get an award, was Doris Lessing, and about three tables away was... Jordan also waiting nervously to see whether she was going to get an award. So it seemed to me that an industry that can bring together those uh, two very different sorts of celebrities was something, uh, something worth, worth working for, definitely. Anyway, on that note, I'll hand over to our chairman, Peter York. Thank you very much, Vaughan. Now, um, got one. <clears throat> God, what a 21st century celebrity you've got there. Now, you are podcast, you are golden, you're on record, behave yourself. I think I, Julia's giving me a lot of instructions. I'm just that bit confused. Anyway, God, you all look so gorgeous and, and tremendously famous too. There are all kinds of undercover celebrities in here, you see. You've just come in your day clothes, haven't you? And... Now, here is a very, very scary picture. You all have seen it. I know you all read the people. Poor George Michael, looking like a startled badger. And he's in the gents on Hampstead Heath at 2 a.m. But who is to blame? Are we all to blame? Did we put him there? Or what? Now, the question today, and we're not actually going to vote on it, of course, is... Does the media break more celebrities than it makes? And I, I think there's a tiny logical error in, in the framing of that motion, but I don't want to be pedantic. Are we particularly sadistic to celebrities now? Are media hyenas extra cruel on our behalf? Does every celebrity get hounded and broken eventually? Do they all feel misused and abused like poor little Dame Heather Mills? Just think about her. Just think of her describing her utter hell. Or are there a lot of winchers who like the rewards and can't take those tiny little knocks, like the occasional cameraman at the bathroom window, three stories up, the odd invented story of addiction and moral turpitude? It's part of the game, isn't it, really? Now, here to discuss this utterly compelling question, the question of September 2008 are Rachel Johnson, columnist and novelist, I think, possibly, Mary? There you are. You've come. I was told you might not come. I was getting worried. I thought I might have to bask or pretend to be you or whatever. Mary Riddle, assistant editor of the Daily Telegraph. Mark Bukowski, have I said that right? It'll do. <laughs> PR and author. And Clarence Mitchell, who was as a... Crisis, what Commu is it? What's the word? Crisis communication consultant. There, you see, that's that's what it's like, and they are going to talk about the torments and the delights of today's very very fast moving celebrity industry in which we serve, which we all serve to a greater or lesser degree. We, we are all guilty. After which I might ask for some sort of brutal clarification, just to take them down a peg or two, because. They've been unnaturally raised. And then, 
the important bit. It's your turn to question and comment and to reveal your own A-list celebrity torment. <laughs> Does, you can describe your struggle against, I don't know, Network Southeast or Heat or whatever, the men who go through your bins. <clears throat> it's happened. It's happening all the time. It could be happening to any of you now. The people who chase you when you're going about your legitimate business at 2 a.m. on Hampstead Heath. Whatever. <laughs> now, first up is Mary Riddle. Who uh, uh, describe you? I've got to describe you. Oh, do yes, Mary works the Daily Telegraph, and as you know, the Daily Telegraph has its own, very own celebrity ecosystem, enclosed <laughs> from the world as a whole. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. She's an interviewer, a columnist, and an assistant editor. There is that right? right? That's right. And she's writing a book about the relationship between celebrity and politics, rather like Cameron on Cameron. Then, Mary. <laughs> Thank you very much, Peter, and um, uh, very nice to be here. It's one of two, I think, media hyenas on the um, platform. And apologies for being late. My excuse is that I got back late last night from that hotbed of celebrity, the Labour Party conference in Manchester. Um, you can imagine the celebrities on offer there, the big figures, Jeff Hoon, <laughs> John Hutton, and actually don't laugh because in that sort of bubble of time and space, they do become very big and very grand figures and um, editors vie to take them out for dinner and they sort of bolt down a very expensive meal in about 20 minutes flat. Uh, give you no story whatsoever, and then rush off to some glittering party where there'll be James Murdoch on the doorstep and lots of hacks such as myself hanging on their every word. Um, uh, it, it really is quite odd to see politicians working together, these great Praetorian guards of sort of PRs and, and, and so on, only their spinners and special advisors. And there is no doubt, I think, that... Um, uh, that today's politicians uh, do see themselves as celebrities. Uh, so, as you can imagine, there's nothing I would rather be doing this morning than another breakfast meeting on four hours sleep. Um, but anyway, I hope you will um, forgive me uh, if I concentrate on politics because it's what I'm writing about at the moment and something that's obviously um, uppermost in my mind. I, I ought to say that I'm uh, an enormous fan of EI and of Julia, who knows far more about um, this than me and was there at the inception of New Labour in its early celebrity days. I'm sure she, perhaps some of you agree that politicians have become paid up members of the celebrity classes. So I'd like to look at celebrity through two prisms, politics and of course the media. We've seen Gordon Brown this week saying he didn't come into politics to be a celebrity. I'm not so sure. I mean I speak as somebody who um, who likes Gordon Brown and thinks, you know, sometimes he gets a rough deal and sometimes not. Um, but it, he is, um, or has become, I think, a, a, a sort of rather um, deliberate celebrity. He's written books about celebrity. He called it Courage, and they were sort of high-end celebrities, but celebrities nonetheless. Um, his friends are celebrities. His literary tropes of the week have been Joseph Conrad and uh, Harry Potter, um, and he wants and needs, like all celebrities, to be loved and to be 
popular, the joke he's been telling on the fringes all week, is about Nelson Mandela and Amy Winehouse. He also had, this isn't the joke, the joke was slightly better than that, uh, the man who had to explain to Mandela who Amy Winehouse was. So you can imagine how that conversation might have gone, a bit laboured. Um, we're used, of course, to car crash celebrities such as Winehouse and such as Britney Spears. I think now we're beginning to see uh, the car crash politician emerge. Um, this week didn't work out quite as expected. Uh, Gordon Brown rescued himself somewhat from his current difficulties uh, with a truly celebrity performance, um, an accolade from his wife, a bravura speech, which he'd been practising on his home podium for uh, weeks, really. Some expert was brought in just for the last month to do the final polishing and, and so on. Um, and so clearly he was going for the effect that only celebrities uh, normally achieve. Um, David Miliband, meanwhile, very able politician, but a bit unwise, in my view, to take on the brown machine so obliquely and under such a spotlight, was rather extinguished. His week started with celebrity-style interviews, no socks and pictures of the family stuck to the stainless steel walk-in fridge freezer and all that, and then sort of expired in the end with these awful banana pictures and rubbery facial contortions and so on. Um, uh, the story, which I think actually wasn't for once spun from number 10, that he'd modulated his speech for fear of having a Hesseltine moment. I mean, I think that sort of rapid rise and decline says a little bit about where politicians have come to generally. It seems to me that politics is now operating on the sort of trajectory of celebrity, uh, where people's um, <coughs> names, are ele uh, reputations are elevated, built up and dashed in very short time, which, of course, is where um, the media comes in. Um, we don't come out of it, I don't think, always very well. As I was saying earlier, we sort of hang around and go, ooh, ah, you know, here's the Prime Minister as he floats in with a kind of Praetorian guard that George Clooney would find a bit embarrassing and over the top. Um, but I think there are, there are much greater difficulties with our elected representatives setting themselves up as stars. And on the question of the debate, does the media break more celebrities than it makes... In general, I would say it was about an even tally, but in two areas, I think that's not so. One is, um, uh, no, just as an example of the ordinary celebrity, uh, they come back. They come back in many guises, and, and often rather bitter ones. You see people like Jade Goody, who's now famous for having cancer. And, and, and you know, there is th this sort of um, resurrection of fame in, in, in whatever unfortunate guise, but she remains a star. I think it's different for politicians and for accidental celebrities. Um, <coughs> by that I mean ordinary people who choose stardom or have it thrust upon them um, uh, by virtue of some event, some unlooked-for event in their lives, often a terrible event, and I'm sure Clarence will be able to talk about that uh, much better than I could. I think once your, your reputation is impugned, then the scars stay with you. I know several politicians who've had their reputations trashed and who will never quite recover. I'll give you one example. Ivan Lewis, a minister in Brown's government, recently said some um, 
uh, things that were perceived as disloyal by central command. Mysteriously, uh, a, um, a story appeared in a national newspaper, the Mail on Sunday, I think, um, detailing an alleged indiscretion on his part towards a young female colleague. All this was resolved many years ago uh, without his other colleagues even being aware of it at the time. Um, so why would it be resurrected now? Um, I've lost count of the number of ministers who told me this week um, that the story emanated from number 10, rightly or wrongly, but in that case, I, I do believe them. Um, so uh, I think in the case of politics, the media break more celebrities um, than they make, and they do so because they're rather lazy. I mean, the media actually aren't terribly good at getting stories. They do wait for somebody to come along often and hand them one on a plate, however um, unappetizing that story might be. So I think you know the media are very com complicit all this, in all this. But meanwhile, politicians aspire to be celebrities, and they do so not only because it's nice to have a bit of attention, but I think we're seeing a very odd time in politics. There's almost a political bypass at the moment. If you want to organise a climate change rally, you go on the internet. Uh, there's all sorts of kind of um, group activity that goes on without being fed through the interface of politics. Uh, and I think politicians are trying in whatever way they can to fight back by being noticed, which is partly, some of it's for money of course, but it, that is partly why they go on Celebrity Fit Club, certainly why they all have Facebook um, pages. They say they're trying to draw up a new compact between them and the electorate. But there is a price to be paid. They are also, in many cases, uh, signing up to some form of assisted suicide. Um, I've got nothing against, in the worst cases, I've got nothing against celebrity at all. I think it often gets a much worse name than it deserves. But I'm not convinced that it's the best way for our elected democ uh, representatives to serve our democracy. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Marion. Well... Somebody said that the Palace of Westminster, which is sort of, it is like a Victorian musical, it really, really is, it is the entertainment businesses for ugly people. Um, uh, and, well, but the fact is, we've got to produce more celebrities. It's a very fundamental part of the economy. And if the process for one moment falters, crash. It's just that you know, there should be a bill about it. It's just like that. Believe you me, no system can work without the oiling of celebrity. So we have to go on producing them. Now, Clarence Mitchell is a crisis... I'm, I'm saying this all over again, just to make sure I got it. Crisis communications consultant. It's lovely. With Freud PR. And there is a, a family, a celebrity family... Isn't that a wonderful thing? They're a celebrity family, aren't they? Wouldn't you say? It could be said. And also the official spokesman for Kate and Jerry McCann. And before that, he ran the Cabinet Office Media Monitoring Unit, which sounds like a fantastic lot of work. You must have been up all day. And yeah. before that, he was a BBC journalist for 20 years, including royal correspondenting, which is why he's called Clarence. <laughs> Clarence. Peter, thank you very much. Good morning. 
yes, as Peter was saying, uh, from a, a former hyena to uh, jo- joining the Praetorian Guard in no uncertain terms over the last 18 months or so. Um, it, it, to use a cliche, it has been quite a baptism of fire coming into the PR world uh, from my journalistic and government background. Um, but it has given me a direct insight into the the mindset, if you like, of the media and why uh, many of the celebrity status aspects come into a story, no matter what the circumstances, simply through the constant attention. And in the case of Kate and Jerry, of course, it's been absolutely constant. Only now has it quietened a little, um, but it has the capacity to flare up at any, any given moment, literally at any time, day or night, from around the world. Celebrity, it's a strange concept, isn't it, to associate with the parents of a missing child. Are they celebrities? No, of course they're not. They're famous, certainly now, but for all the wrong reasons. It's absolutely the worst possible set of circumstances to lose your child and to have no idea where she is. How on earth can that be celebrated? But the focus, the attention, the drive of the campaign has undoubtedly generated that aspect to it, there's no question. Um, But they themselves will be the last to say that they are celebrities. And part of the campaign was very much advice on my side for us not to go down the celebrity route, even accidentally. Many of the interview bids that come in still come in. I have over 120 bids for them to do big sit-down interviews now since their Arguido status was lifted and we have specifically chosen not to do any of those for the moment. During the campaign, as I say, we had many, many requests from some of the highest profile international broadcast names. I won't go into details here now. Uh, And every principal print title you can imagine from around the world wanting them. And we took the conscious decision that if we went down that road for the right reasons from our perspective, from their perspective, in terms of maintaining awareness of Madeline and keeping the campaign rolling uh, it would very easily be something of a hostage to fortune and it could very easily be portrayed in a negative way and we didn't do that it was the same with some of the very many generous offers that were made uh, for transportation as an example a number of very famous people offered private jets in the early stages to help travel around Europe in one or two cases we used the offer because it was practical and necessary But other times we deliberately went commercial, as an example, running the gauntlet of television crews at every single airport. Uh, We could have avoided that, but we chose not to, just because we didn't want the celebrity tag, if you like, to stick. So why did the media latch on to the story to the extent it did on the consistent basis it did? I mean, it's often been said to me that this was the human interest story of the last decade, and I think that probably is right. It didn't feel it at the start, it just felt like a major news story, one that was generating legitimate interest. But it did seem to take on this life of its own within the media for a whole host of reasons. Yes, on on the face of it, the obvious story, you have a missing child. The mystery of where is she, what has happened to her, what are the circumstances. The media's natural desire, and I say this despite all of the problems that we've had since, the media's natural desire to help. They want to tell the story. They want to try and contribute to getting Madeline back through raising awareness and keeping her image out there. It touched on parents' universal fears, the absolute horror of missing your child in the supermarket for a split second 
this was it magnified a hundredfold and on holiday in an area populated by many of the, shall we say, editors and readers of, of the various publications. It was something they could immediately relate to. It raised, of course, the whole question of parenting issues and, and, and uh, alleged negligence or not, as the case may be. That's generated a very fierce debate, which continues to this day, and Kate and Jerry fully accept that there is a legitimate debate to be had around that. They believe they did nothing wrong on the night. They were thoroughly checking. But of course, they know they made a mistake, and they've accepted that from the elf. Um, and some of the criticism, whilst well placed and, and well argued, is perfectly valid. A lot of it has been vitriolic and downright slanderous. Uh, and that is another aspect that's come out of this. I'll talk about some of the drawbacks of the celebrity side to it in a minute, but that's part of it. It raised questions of police competence. Were the Portuguese police doing enough? And surely they wouldn't do it as well as the British police. All sorts of nationalistic undertones began to creep in very early on. Plucky little Portugal up against the might of the British state, undue governmental interference, apparently. My first involvement was on behalf of the Foreign Office. My previous role, as Peter indicated, was with government. I was sent out as part of that machinery, as part of the consular assistance package that anybody would be extended as a British national in trouble abroad. Uh, but no, that was immediately seen in some quarters as undue governmental pressure and I'd been put out there as some sort of spin doctor or spook. All untrue. We were there to help them in the face of unprecedented media interest. As an, ex as an example, um, on the first morning, there were something like 40 to 50 reporters outside the apartment, from not just from Portugal. British reporters were beginning to arrive quite quickly once the news broke overnight. And by the time I got there, around about a fortnight later, we had, I counted them one day, we had nearly 400 journalists outside the apartment and something like 40 television crews from around the world. Um, that is unprecedented coverage and a level that was, was beyond the immediate capacity of any one press officer from their embassy in Lisbon or the uh, Alex Walfall, who was the crisis management management specialist for Mark Warner, the travel company. And they, in turn, the, the ambassador, in turn, asked the Foreign Office for assistance. And that's why I and a, another colleague, Cherie Dodd, were, were sent out in the early stages. It simply was beyond any one person. And even then, at times, it was almost unmanageable. But we did our best. The it's often been said to me as well, oh, this is very simply because they're middle-class doctors, they're photogenic, Madeline's a very pretty girl, it plays into all sorts of um, stereotypical um, preconceptions on the part of the media, and this would never have been extended to uh, a black child or Asian child from an underprivileged family who'd gone missing somewhere else. That's not true. Um, the coverage would certainly have been different. But the extent of assistance via government for a, an underprivileged family in that situation would be exactly the same. You have to ask the media why they would cover those two different situations differently. And that it, I think that tells you a lot about the, the value structures that the media have themselves, why they will promote one particular family's situation, perhaps more so than another. Um, Madeline touched many buttons, if you like, for them on news desks. And then a commercial imperative began to take over as well. People realised, or news editors realised, that this story was not, in their terms, a good story. 
in inverted commas, but it was also one that was generating real public debate and real public connection. There were, we, were, we were given at different times um, generalized figures that some tabloids were putting on sales of up to 40 to 50,000 copies a day just by putting a Madeline story on the front page. Any Madeline story, true or not. And that was partly how the problems began to develop because there was this imperative and pressure on the reporters out there in Portugal to deliver. And I would get them coming up to me every day saying, we've got to have something for tomorrow. And if there legitimately wasn't anything new to give or to, to, to guide on, something spurious would appear in the paper anyway. Um, and uh, this was a real problem. And the media began to get a little lazy. They had this demand on their shoulders, but the British media would simply sit in, there was one particular bar called Hugo Beatty's, and uh, they would sit there. It had the lethal combination of free Wi-Fi and alcohol, so that became the newsroom. <laughs> that became the newsroom for the duration. And they, would, they had translators, they were paying, who would sit there with the morning's Portuguese press, which came at it from a completely different angle. These stories would be translated in the main negative. Uh, they would then phone me or talk to me. I would deny or try to explain. And that was it. Mitchell had commented, it was balanced journalism, and in it goes. It was nothing of the sort. It was lazy. Um, but the, one of the problems as well was that the usual police sources that uh, journalists will rely on in this country who will talk and guide and give some steerage, well, it wasn't, wasn't happening in Portugal. Um, their laws are very different. They are covered by judicial secrecy, which means it's an offence for any officer or indeed anybody involved in the case to speak out about it. And so they could easily turn around and say to journalists, oh, sorry, judicial secrecy, laws of secrecy, we cannot comment. But that was a convenient uh, cover in many ways because, sure enough, the Portuguese press was full of negative stories, many of which we know were sourced back to, and I'm not going to name any individuals, but we know that the information could only have come from the police direction. And this was one of the constant problems we had because for the wrong reasons, the police made a number of assumptions very early on and stuck to it, come what may. Um, and that's what, one of the, 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 the problems, the divisions in the approach became apparent with those first leaks that started to come out once the um, police inquiry was underway. As I say, broadly, the British media, have they, to come back to the, the de debate point, have they broken Kate and Jerry as celebrities more so than, than not? No, I don't believe they have. The British press and broadcast media generally remain supportive. Yes, of course, they'll go for the they'll go for the sensational headline when they can get it. They'll go for the the revelatory aspect, uh, of course, and that's quite perfectly proper. We have nothing against legitimate journalism, um, but they are still broadly on side in supporting the desire to help find Madeline and will do positive stories and positive leaders, or at worst, they're neutral. The Portuguese press continue to be broadly negative because they have been fed this line, if you like, constantly by their police, by the authorities, and for whatever reasons. And um, that they tend to believe that, and they tend to push that forward. So we do have this paradox between the two sides. But as I say, Kate and Jerry have now got all the downsides of celebrity they can't go anywhere without being recognised or without phone calls being made within minutes of them walking into a sandwich bar. I, we, we went for a sandwich once at Trafalgar Square and within 30 seconds of walking into the shop, I had a call from the Daily Mirror 
to say, we know the McCanns are in London. And I said, how do you know that? Well, we've seen them. And, I said, and somebody in the sandwich shop had called the news desk within seconds of us walking in. Um, they had photographers camped outside their home for every day for six months after their return, so much so that we had to get the PCC involved to warn news desks and agencies off. They finally accepted that, and now they can travel around relatively unhindered in Rofley. But elsewhere, they really do feel that they're in the middle of a goldfish bowl. So they have all the downsides of it now with none of the real advantages. They're not rich. All the money that's come in through the various arguments we've had with newspapers, through libel, settlements, all goes to the fund. It all goes back to helping them. But that said, they're not bitter about the media, but they'll be very careful in how they use it from now on. It's still a very valuable tool when it's working with you, and the media could still be the breakthrough that leads to Madeleine being found, and we pray that is the case. Um, but essentially... Engaging with it was absolutely necessary. They were aware of the downsides that were potentially there, the reputational aspects, and I'm afraid that's going to continue for as long as Madeline remains missing, and they know that. But on the whole, they don't feel shortchanged by the media as a collective breed, but where it oversteps the mark, makes mistakes or downright lies are run, we will challenge it more out of with a heavy heart, out of reluctance, rather than wanting to be seen to be heavy-handed. And that's really all I can say in general terms on it for now. Thank you, Clarence. It sounds like a very tough decision. You went deciding in order to keep the the window open, in effect, mm -hmm. that you would take the risk of high visibility. And on balance, thinking just about British media, it sort of worked out. It did keep that window open. It, sadly, it hasn't um, found Madeleine, but um, people behave pretty well. Indeed. I mean, I, I think sh sh this was, you could argue, one of the first, uh, the highest profile missing child case in the era of the internet, a full on internet. And I would defy any family in that position who has access to broadband and a laptop not to do the same. You'd be failing your child if you didn't. But, you know, you, you are opening up the floodgates and you have to be ready for that. And that's what they did. They knew that and they accept that and they'll keep going. Um, thank you. Um, next up is Rachel Johnson and she writes a, a column, often a very funny one for the Sunday Times, and sometimes she's serious and sober-minded and sometimes she's very, very funny indeed. And she's written two very funny novels about the modern Uber class called Notting Hill, Hell and Shire Hell. And uh, since we're in product placement mode, Shire Hell, uncorrected proof. We've got, got your book too. Now, she thinks she's here to add generalised fluffiness. Um, uh, and of course she is, to some extent, but actually what we all want to hear is go. what it's like <laughs> to wake up, I don't know, about a week ago and realise that as a shy country mouse sister of a global entertainment super brand, superstar, what can it mean? You know, you blinked. What's it all about? I can't think what you're referring to, Peter. No, but... I need you to spell it out. <laughs> no, but the, the audience will, will suggest... 
You're being too elliptical. Your brother's been sort of putting himself about in the, in the world recently, <laughs> and, and, people, and people have noticed, and he's been to China and everything. I we know. You, okay, all right. I see where you're going here. What's that, like, that, what's that <laughs> like for you, skulking in your suburban <laughs> retreat and in your filth-infested country house, as we've seen also? <laughs> What? No, no, Peter was set up to do this, it's all right, because it gets me going. No, it, it, was in, it was in the papers, it must be true. Oh, no, what, the dirty <laughs> bit? The, the, yeah, the, yeah, thing yeah. About, the thing about your yeah, house, yeah, no, it, no. it was exceptionally... No, in fact, I'd had, a, I had contract cleaners in before the photo photographers arrived. <laughs> no, look, Peter, I will get on to that, I promise, because I know that, you know, otherwise it's not really worth the price of admission coming to hear me. <laughs> but I think we should talk a bit about the issues, you know, does the media break more celebrities than it makes? And I think um, Mary and uh, Clarence, the key thing for me, there are several key things here. One is the media is very lazy. And um, before I was got lucky and got a column, I had to write features. And um, I mean, product and papers are completely carried by celebrity. And if you wrote, I mean, at one point, I'd flogged to um, Sarah Sands, whose husband is in the audience. Um, a big fe feature trying to plug one of my own books and I thought well you know that's enough you know I'm plugging me and um, she rang me and she said Rachel the piece is, is very jolly but we need more celebrities in it and so can you think of any of the because I'd done my first book was an, an annoying collection of annoying columns I'd written and she said can you put in some of the names of the famous people you've annoyed and that would have just, think how much more annoyed they would have been after they had been used to illustrate an annoying book by an annoying female columnist. So I kind of tried, I did fend her off. But this happens all the time. For example, on Sunday, on this week, I had to write a big 3,000 word suicide note about the effect of the credit crunch on, on my Notting Hill neighborhood. And um, I thought, oh, this might go down like a bucket of cold Bollinger, you know, ha ha ha. And, so I wrote what I thought was a careful sort of generic piece that didn't trash anybody in particular. Anyway, mm -hmm. I sent this off. They said, Sunday Times says, you know, like, very jolly. That's what everyone always says, very jolly. Uh, so I thought, oh, that's all right. And then um, the next day, before I'd even seen the paper, I'd had a handwritten, a couple of handwritten letters through my door. And one of them was from Laura Bailey. And I thought, why is Laura Bailey? And then I opened the Sunday Times, and lo and behold, there was a picture of Laura Bailey that she'd been papped. She was with a newborn baby. And the, under the picture of Laura Bailey, it said, Laura Bailey, an archetypal Notting Hill woman who spends her half-terms in the Maldives and lunch at the Ivy. And Laura Bailey was absolutely devastated by this because she says according to Laura Bailey she's a hard-working mother of five two of them hers and she juggles being a writer being a model so now we come to this whole notion of did Laura Bailey actually invite this well I think there are two things here um, if you at any point in your career set out to court publicity you are then fair game you cannot avoid that and you have to take the rough with the smooth Second point is, if you have any talent at all, it doesn't really matter whether the media decides to build you up or to take you down. You can, you know, if you're Lucian Freud or J.D. Salinger, you don't really give a monkey's whether the media takes any notice of you or not, because your talent is so, is, you know, over overriding, um, you know, brilliance. And in fact, it's quite cool not to have any media attention at all. So um, the question of whether more celebrities are made or broken, well, I think as, 
Mary said, it's probably even. Um, it really depends whether you've got talent and whether you've sorted out. Those are the two things that seem to me determine the outcome of your career. And unless you're prepared to reinvent yourself the whole time, you've got to expect that, yes, sometimes you're going to be up and sometimes you're going to be down and nasty things are going to appear about you and um, everyone's going to, you know, make hay with you. No? I think the, the difference, you know, the, the McCanns being internationally recognised celebrities are a, a perfect example of this. They did nothing to seek this celebrity status out. And um, yet they became very, very famous. So they, there is a whole separate category of people who did nothing to solicit public and media attention. And they have nothing to sell. That's the other thing. If you go to a party now, it's not uh, you sit in warm white wine and, and, and champagne breath and people spitting bits of salmon at you. It's, it's you know, photographers who determine everybody's ranking at the party by sort of saying, I was, at a, I was at my own book launch with Plum Sykes, and I thought, oh, they want a nice picture of me with Plum Sykes. And they said, hop it, Rachel, we want a, we want a standalone of Plum. You know, this thing, the, the celebrities, it, the whole thing is brutal. And um, last night, uh, at, we were at lots of people were at lots of book parties, and the whole thing went on like that too. You know, uh, People not only go around with cameras, but movie cameras. And if you submit yourself to this, you've got to... You know, you can't then complain afterwards, a la Laura Bailey, that who, a woman who I like and so on and so on, but she has made a career of being photographed, and therefore if you are photographed, just live with it. Shall I move on to the B word, P? Oh. Oh. Uh, okay, I've now put a spam filter on my um, email because I get so much stuff from people who simply don't understand how infuriating it is being... A sibling, um, a very retiring younger sibling of an international celebrity. And I can tell you one thing that um, you are completely broken if any member of your family becomes very famous. That, that Those are the people who are totally broken by celebrity. Um, you get very, very tiresome emails from people who say things like, I've got a good idea for Boris on my bus route. And um, John, Johnny Bowden sent me an email saying, I'm, in, I'm very bored in a hotel room, and I've got, had an idea that he should have a pack of hounds at the London, when, in the inaugural <laughs> celebrations of the London Olympics. He should have a pack of hounds and a master of fox hounds. I was like, why, why am I getting this stuff in my inbox? What else do I get? Endless people saying, you know, Lynn Barber ringing me up or Justine Piketty saying, I'm, I'm doing Boris next week, as if I want to share. You know, it's bizarre. The last thing you want to do is share. Um, what else? What else, Peter? I don't know. Um, more, well, super, more supermodels coming to the door desperate. Oh, yes, that was good. I like, <laughs> that was the high point for me, too. Um, <laughs> Weeping supermodels. Yeah. <laughs> Yet another beautiful picture has appeared of them in a five million circulation <laughs> newspaper. Ah, boo hoo. Um, what a yeah. You make a pact with the devil. You know, if you don't have any talent. Oh yes. I, last night at a party, <laughs> I went around asking people this question. I asked Ruby Wax. I said, Ruby, help me. I've got to do a panel for Julia. And she said, 
Rachel, the reason I don't do panels like that is I'd hit a brick wall straight away on that question. <laughs> so then I asked Alan Davidson, who's the photographer, one of the photographers who has to cover endless parties, and he said, well, it's very simple. Um, all you need to be famous is to wear pretty, to look pretty and to wear the right clothes. And you don't have to do anything else. And then I said the two words that to me symbolize this whole syndrome, Margot Stilly. <laughs> what else is she, you know, that's all she does. And yet she's in every single paper. So, you know, it can be very easy, but it can be very easy to, to crash and burn too. End of Witter. <laughs> Well, thank you, Rachel. And I think we can all say that we found that extraordinarily poignant. <laughs> um, uh, and, and that advice is good for us all. Wear pretty dresses. Yeah. And the right and, clothes. And the right... Uh, smile a lot and look lovely. And I think that goes for everyone in this room. Um, uh, the fascinating thing is to go out with the paparazzi on their evening runs and see what their priorities are and then to go back to their picture agencies which I once did with Richard Young and you could see how much there was an absolute skiding scale down to Z of how much he got for a particular person you know, yes. Nicole Kidman in London yes yeah. think of some others perhaps not and there you are now, um, I just the image of Laura Bailey at the door weeping. Jesse, it'll never, it'll never leave our minds. There you, there you are. Now, Mark Bukowski, have I said that right? You've asked me twice. I know, but I yes, but do I'm very, I'm very insecure about this. I had very little secondary education. It, Mark. Mark has run his eponymous PR agency for 21 years, and it's got... It doesn't just do fizzy drinks or stuff like things. It does people. It's got a celebrity arts and entertainment bit as well as a product one. And they've, they've done Michael Jackson. You've done Michael Jackson. I've fired Michael Jackson. Well, oh. But you've had, had your hands on him, so to speak. I've met him. Yes. And he's a PR pundit, too. He's a sort of historian of the golden archive of PR and what... What used to be called press agents, and when you could say anything, absolutely anything. And he's a historian of PR stunts, and he's written two books on it. And the latest, the Green Book, the Fame Formula is out now. Mark, yeah, please don't wait till it gets to the paperback to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> sort of, well, I just, in a very literary atmosphere. Take that seriously. Support your local. Yeah, author. yeah please. Yeah. yeah. Um, God, what a question. Does the media break more celebrities? Um, I, I'm fascinated by history, and uh, writing the book um, put me on this incredible journey to meet lots and lots of people and go to incredible research facilities like the Market Herrick Library in LA. Um, and that was the best part of it. And what I soon discovered, which I always felt was the truth, is that this is nothing's new. And I remember writing something on The Guardian, and uh, the end editor then said to me, have you looked at the comments on the blog? And I said, why? I said, look at the first one, and it's bound to be Mark Bukowski is going to read something, write something about some old ancient publicist and how it's all done before. And that's because it has all been done before, and basically the media has always had a lust and a need for celebrity. It's about content, it's about connecting with audiences. And I remember looking at an ancient copy of the Times from 1890 when there was a huge debate in the Thunderer about whether Charles Barnard's dog act 
should be on the same bill as Sarah Bernhardt and Lily Langtree. So there's always been this obsession. What, what, what's changed um, is two things. The speed of the media and the speed of the net. The 24-7 soundbite. It is impossible now for celebrities to say one thing and that not to be headline news within a nanosecond. Gone is the process of reporting. And journalists are under that same pressure now. Clarence would have, would have faced it and watched every day and marveled at his work because he's dealing with moment-by-moment -moment activity. And that's what celebrities fail to understand. Rachel's point is quite interesting, is that nobody, everybody now has a, a knowledge of the media and think they understand it from the bloke delivering me milk to the, 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 to the man I collect my papers from most mornings. They think they know about it, they don't. Get inside and understand how horrible it is because you can't keep everybody happy. There is always gonna be that 20% factor. And what is necessary now with celebrity is that it keeps the format alive. Um, the old publicists that I found were control merchants. They were called Bob. They were called the suppress agents because they kept the beauty of the story alive. They kept the connection with the personality in this sort of candy floss world that they lived in, and the people loved them. What we want now is the dirty linen. We want to understand the negative. We've become a very negative space. And where brands now exist is where celebrities exist. They're not celebrities, they're brands. They've got a limited life to plunder. There is a formula, it's not a COD formula, it's an absolutely appropriate formula that talks about 15 months before you disconnect. The media disconnects when you're no longer delivering that connection. The McCann's on the front page delivered an audience for a declining market. And newspapers are not investing in great writers. When I started uh, many moons ago, you, you had people who were invested in, who, who were not under the same pressure of filing not just to the page, but to the web. And so now the obsession is the celebrity. It's the easy, easy, easy moment. It is a soundbite. Paul Gordon Brown exists in, a, in an age now where he's surrounded by very bright and beautiful people as, as, as national leaders, Car, you know, with very glamorous wives, Carla Bruni. Uh, we've got now John McCain, and they've dumped the hockey mom to make him look younger and more youthful. You know, the pseudo event which was, which was invented to surround um, Tony Pears' 1997 acquisition into Downing Street. Remember, the, the, the gates were going to come down, it was a new age. We're bought into this. So there's, there was one story that I think epitomised where we've, where we've got to now about celebrity, devouring that celebrity, being interested in that celebrity, and therefore allowing the media um, to generate the interest in them. There was an amazing actress called uh, Gouli Andre, unknown, came to America in the 30s as a silent movie actress. She was a close horse of the day, um, front page of Vanity Fair and, 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 and every sort of fashion magazine of its time. She'd never transferred to, um, to the talkies. Um, and I think by the time she reached 50, no one was interested in her any longer, which is very similar to Celebrity Today. It's very difficult when you see these people desperate to re-engage their, their presence back in the movies. So she took all her cuttings and she took all her photographs and like Brunhilde she built this funeral pyre and set fire to the whole thing <laughs> and I think that sort of in a way sums up then what did the publicists do at the time the studio publicists used to they completely suppressed the story 
because they didn't want negativity. Now we devour on it, and we, 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 we need it. So we need to go back and look at history, because it, it will tell us things. But while the media gets quicker and quicker and quicker, and the internet gets a lot more powerful in terms of the way we receive our news on our mobile phones or whatever, the, the celebrity becomes more important because we're getting further and further away from the real story. We just want the soundbite. And the celebrities that can actually deliver the soundbite and can deliver the pretty pictures and pretty dresses will become a commodity for failing media. As the media gradually disappears and sinks away like the polar ice caps, um, celebrities will be left, and that's a frightening thought. Like polar bears. Thank you very much, Mark. It's a, it's a wonderful thought, and I think it's right, that when everything's gone, exposed like a lot of unveneered teeth, they'll be sticking up celebrities. They'll be left. They'll be the people be left. It's all been done before. You should tell at some point the Fatty Arbuckle story. <clears throat> it's just wonderful. Hollywood Babylon. Now, it's your turn. Now it's your turn to quiz the cruel commentariat and the heartless PRs, and you, you can reveal your identity and your private hell. Any of you who are weeping supermodels, for instance. Any of you who are planning self, imminent self-immolation with your cuttings books. Anything like that. Young Mr. Barber there. Yes, I, I, I'm not a weeping supermodel, but I'm somebody who interviews celebrities all the time, which is a ludicrous thing to do for a grown man, but there you are, that's what I do. I agree with Mary, it's about even Stevens breaking and making. Um, I was thinking, as you were speaking, uh, this week I've interviewed two celebrities and they, they illustrate quite well the difference as to whether celebrities get broken or made. The first was Bette Midler, who I've never read a mean word about because she's so smart and she's so funny and she gives us what she wants. She sort of colludes in her own success. The second was Jason Donovan, who's very sweet, but not very smart. Um, he had um, a big career uh, in Neighbours, and then a, a pop career. And then he ill-advisedly, if you remember, took on the Face magazine over that feature as to whether or not he was gay. And although he won the case, he sort of, um, it was a Pyrrhic victory. And then he went down the drugs route. And to such an extent, actually, it became a boring story that nobody then pursued anymore. Now he's back. Um, he's going to be in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, if you can quite imagine it, on the London stage. Di-da-di-da. So th that's quite a contrast, those two people. Um, I also think that um, papers clearly uh, want it both ways. I really enjoyed the other week the Daily Mail in, in their Saturday weekend supplement, a heartwarming extract from Martin Clunes's book about why he likes dogs so much. Um, column after column. Now turn to the main paper where there's a poisonous interview with his first wife saying that marriage to Martin was hell on earth, fueled as it was by his emotional cruelty and his cocaine habit. I mean, how does Dacre look at himself in the mirror? On the other hand, I'm very happy to take his shilling. And people tell me the whole time that, uh, oh, this celebrity bubble, you know, it's going to burst. No, it's not. It's not. I make quite a good living, thank you. Um, I work at home, however, and occasionally my wife drifts by my desk and hears me turning myself in two, trying to get um, an interview with yet another celebrity. PRs always offer you the people you, you don't want. You know, 
you're really going to like this person. They're going to be huge in about a year. Mm. When you ring back in about a year, no, but we have got this great new talent, you know, and so it goes. Anyway, my wife will say to me on occasion, um, how can you bear it? How can you bear it? And of course, I always defend myself, but even I, by the end of the week, sort of six o'clock on um, Friday, when I open the first bottle of Merlot, um, I do remember a story which I'm assured is true about Hugh Grant's mother. Hugh Grant's mother was once at a dinner party and found herself sitting next to a man she'd never met before, and they started talking. And the man said, oh, do you have any family? She said, yes, I've got two sons. Oh, really, said the man, what do they do? And she said, well, one is a film star and the other is in international banking. And the man said, how fascinating, which bank? <laughs> so that kind of gets it in perspective. Well, it's an existential life that you lead, isn't it? <laughs> it's a very, very wonderful... It's like being the creature of a modern novel. It's wonderful. But it's changed, then, isn't it? Can I, can I, in, in a sense, you talk about Bette Midler. Bette Midler was controlled for many, many years by Rogers and Cowan in the old days, Paul Block, Alan Nirob. She's not as interesting now as Jason Donovan to this territory. To this territory. That's the truth. So she doesn't have to get up and do stuff. She, she'd wander away. And I picked up three fantastic stories about Bette Midler that I couldn't use in the book. Um, but it was a strength of the public. The majority of people will know who's publicising Jason Donovan now. They will not know the person who has controlled and managed Bette Midler's image for 30 years. Uh, and, and I think that's the difference now. We're becoming obsessed with the process where the people are not as interesting because those who have the skill keep a very, very low profile because they have to, because they understand the process. You just think that Max Clifford is always being quoted as saying, my real work is not this stuff. My real work is the 90% of people who I keep out of the columns. I think we should be told. Now, <laughs> other questions. You've got to state your name, rank and number and be quick and rem remember you're being podcast. Yeah. Uh, Nicholas Brakespeare, senior publicist for the Children's Society. I'm just following up on Mark's point about the soundbite and how fast it travels. Obviously, Lindsay Lowen did an interview yesterday where she confirmed her, her lesbian affair with Samantha Ronson. So I'm kind of interested in the panel's approach. What do, they, what do they think? How is the media and how are PRs approaching sexuality as an issue for celebrities and politicians as well? Um, is this something that's being used to make more than break these days? Um, and is there a divide between the approach from the UK side and from the US side? Well, that, the, the, the Anderson Cooper at the moment is trying to... Uh, to deal with the various internet allegations about his sexuality. is a parlor game I play is name an A-list out American film star. Name one. You'd struggle. I don't think you can. Name, in our own territory, A-list celebrities out, from George Michael to C.A. McKellen, Graham Norton. list goes on. That's the difference. You know, we have a very open and a, and a, and a, and a pretty switched-on idea about sexuality in America. It's worrying. Did you say the Children's Society? Well, I think the, there's a key thing here, which is that I've got teenage children. Children are totally accepting of, um, so, you know, I kissed a girl and I liked her. They'll go around the kitchen singing that. Um, they are, I mean, I think the children, are, you know, the teenagers of today are going to be the making and doing the making and the breaking. And they are unbelievably ch chilled and accepting. And also, they're... Celeb yeah, celebrity antennae are so in attuned. I mean, I might come back from something and say, 
ooh, I was at a party last night, and my daughter will say, who was there? And I'll say, sorry, it sounds awfully name-droppy, but I'm getting to the point. I'll say Nigella, and she goes, yeah. And then I'll say, um, uh, you know, Sarah Brown, who? And then I'll say, Danny Minogue, and they go, really? You know, they, the whole, the, you know, children are going to determine who's going to be famous and celebrated in the future. And they're very relaxed about whether they're gay or straight. So we're going to see this changing. About the fact that all this is supposed to be very damaging to children, all this sexualized imagery yeah, and so on. I, I sort of think the mood has moved a little bit away from there. I think that, it, and it's curious that it should have done, because um, as you were suggesting, things are now sort of out on the internet that uh, it's very hard to, to, to police. And I think, in a way, the, the newspapers sort of hide behind that a bit. And also, I think there is a bit of a sort of age of prudery. It's the way a lot of more serious newspapers, such as mine, use celebrity now because it looks more attractive and you get a decent picture on the front page and stuff. But it's almost a sort of prop to what the paper's supposed to be about. So it's about commercialisation and it's about selling and stuff. And I think there is a barrier. They don't think celebrities often are interested enough, uh, are interesting enough to go into all of that. But I'm really interested, too, in your point on time. And it's one that Mark brought up earlier, the speed of the media and the speed of the net and so on. And that it's not really a 24-7 culture anymore. It's kind of nanosecond. And I wonder if there's something about time in all of this, too. And I wonder if that explains a bit um, the, the um, obsession that people had with Clarence's story, with the McCann's, that this was a story that recalibrated time, in a way. You know, when people are made or broken and um, uh, in an eye blink, in an instant... This is a narrative that goes on and on and on and in a way that people can coalesce around. And so I, I think that whole issue of time is quite interesting. The other thing is that the media, who are the great power brokers, making and breaking people, I mean, it seems to me from what we're all saying on the panel that we're rather the dupe of all this. Everybody said they're lazy. Clarence, Rachel... Mark, I think. So you get the feeling, actually, of this rather passive media who's sitting there waiting for stuff to be handed to it. And, you know, the sort of making and breaking is a bit of accidental um, elevation or savagery rather than uh, any evidence of media power. And, and I think, um, obviously didn't directly impinge on what I've been doing, but the, the golden rule in journalism is to expose hypocrisy. Now, if someone's open about their sexuality, it becomes less of a story and uh, accepted, as, Pete, as, as Mark was saying, um, you know, from Elton John onwards. Uh, it's when somebody claims to be one thing and can be demonstrably shown to be doing something else, that's when they latch onto it. That's why politicians um, you know, find themselves on the sticky end of things at times, because it is not so much the issue itself per se, it is the... The, the lack of trust in the public in a way and the, the attempt to dissemble that is what the media will, will rile the media and they will move on that and actually get on with it, the real journalism for once rather than being supine and sitting there waiting for things to come to them. If you look at Kelly Holmes and Colin Jackson, for example, sports figures versus you know straight counterparts for family, reporting on a family and, and things they're up to in their family lives, holidays, even in terms of you know photo, photojournalism, the difference the treatment, the approach from the media and the reporting. Down to whether the audience gives a damn 
and what you know what are the real stories if you if you set up an anodyne interview that has got copy approval and headline approval and whatever it doesn't connect with people people are, are smarter than that so publishers have got to be pretty clever in terms of how you get the balance between protecting you know your from mr barber over there to get at the real story and, and what they want to get across because everybody enjoys their privacy in whatever sense and if people who've been through the process know that you know to put their head above the parapet they're going to get things thrown at them so what is the story why should the audience give a damn and that's what brands are turning on to now because you know they, they've got to have something that connects it's the word of mouth it, it elongates the story Clarence's issue here is it was a story that kept on going that people gave a damn about interested about when you are letting yourself being photographed on a jet ski in Menorca you know you're in trouble fighting politics a bit now they agree and I, I very much sympathise with your point these endless phone calls trying to persuade people to uh, grovelingly try to persuade people which I do a lot of myself to uh, give you an interview and they will say this is politicians oh well we've got a story for you so they give you this sort of pre-packaged news story supposedly which is always something that's rubbish and quite uninteresting or they say even more bleakly I'm afraid we haven't got a story and it kind of is in the interviewer's job to go and prise a story out of them whether you're talking about Jason Donovan or whether you're talking about the Chancellor of the Exchequer so I think it all has become very very artificial Julia. Well, I just wanted to ask a question about quality and quantity and whether the huge appetite for celebrity and the huge proliferation of celebrity and the fact that we don't just have A-list, we have B-list, C-list, D-list, even something called a Z-list, whether they are the equivalent of the subprime market <laughs> and that there is so much of them and they've so cheapened and polluted the marketplace for information that ultimately the media is going to uh, evaporate, as it were, because of them and not in spite of them. That they going to bring down people's trust for any information that's valid or true or not pretty. And then they'll have to be all bought out in a national, international, a global plan. We should pay for them. Prime celebrity clog in the economic system. And they are very, very important economically, celebrities. In truth, you can't sell anything without them. But, but there, there's, there's always been huge amounts of celebrity. There's no, there's no, there's no more, there's not, there's not more celebrities now. There's actually more media. Because where, where you've got now, every, even every broadsheet newspaper now bringing out their picture led magazine what newspapers, what media owners are understanding is that they've got to get behind it and actually create something as a mirror to this or, or create some... So they've always been there. I, I think, in fact, there's, there's, there's less interesting celebrities now than there was 50 yes, years ago. Yes, but in absolute numbers, I'm sure, where we to quantify the, the celebrity population, <laughs> it is enormously increased, and we need it. We depend on them. They're brave little people. But isn't Julia touching on a really interesting point, which is sort of... Um, I mean, I think there is a connection between what's happening in world markets and what's happening in celebrity, you know, in celebrity land, in a way. I mean, as we sit here, the American Congress is scratching its head and wondering whether to bail out the entire economic system of the West or let it sink without trace. And 
whatever happened last week, people think, oh, you know, a bit of a blip in the economy. The world has actually changed beyond measure. You've got no sense of this at all. You know, Labour Party conference, it completely passed them by. But all these things are going to come home to roost. And we are going to be in a very different world where you can't afford your... You know, I was speaking to some very, um, very well-paid, I thought, journalist who told me the first thing he did was cancel his David Lloyd membership, as they, uh, and he had some awareness, I think, of what was to come. So, how celebrities are treated in an age of austerity, I think, is quite interesting. Whether people become more interested in them, because I suppose in America, celebrity culture grew up around, you know, being something that brightened brighten grim days a bit, or whether it's seen as so trivial that the whole thing sinks without trace, bringing the media down with it. I don't know. But they can do sort of public information films about how to save string or bits of soap or... <laughs> yeah, do you mind, uh, like they did then. <laughs> Lady uh, there. Anita. Anita Bennett, Taylor Bennett. Uh, to Mary's point, and exaggerating it or extending it a bit further, Rachel went to see this last night because she was at parties, but there was a gripping and rather compelling news night um, episode where one looked at the very top of the political agenda in the states and looked at publicity supporting the do we don't we meet as a uh, duo to save or not save the nation and was it in fact true that these politicians were putting to one side their personal interests in the interests of our global economy or were they in fact using the most uh, exceptional publicity machine that can be found. It would be interesting to know how Mary saw that whole handling. That's a really interesting question and I I saw a bit of it too and I think that my assumption is that John McCain, who knows beans about the American economy, even less than I do if such a thing is possible as far as I can ascertain, was kind of flown into Washington to sort, sort the whole thing out, was clearly sort of political uh, game playing to the Republicans advantage but equally the fact that the whole thing was diverted onto oh should we be there or should we not and is it wise for Barack Obama to stay away or be there well actually this great sort of global crisis is about to break I think is a terribly interesting point and one that uh, uh, certainly illustrates how values have become a bit distorted I don't know what everybody else will all have to be acted out by celebrities and then people will understand it. <laughs> Carol. Carol Stone, I now run an opinion research company so interested in people's views. I'm wondering, going back to the question whether the media makes uh, breaks more than it makes, uh, what is the one thing that would be the unforgivable sin that would make the media break a celebrity that they had made and would it be their decision to break them because they had done something they felt had been disloyal to the media or would you think they would be triggered by something they felt the public was changing? When we were talking about sexuality, I, I remembered the MMR thing with Cherie Blair, which I think is a good example because I think the fact that she wouldn't be level with the media really turned them against her. And I think lying or not levelling at, on, a, on a matter of public interest or importance is something that the media finds quite hard to forgive. And I think that the media never, ever... Um, usually they do that thing of, you know, you're up one day, you're down the next. But with Cherie, that sort of scene, the iron seemed to enter the soul. And I think that that was one of those moments. I don't know what the, other, the rest uh, of the panel think. I, I agree uh, with you, Rachel. Yes, lying uh, or even dissembling 
and not being entirely truthful um, is, is, the, is the number one reason for the media to turn against you. One of the reasons that we developed, or I hopefully developed pretty good relations early on in the McCann case, was I was as open as I possibly could be at all times. I would make myself available, and even if I couldn't say something, I'd explain why I couldn't say something, and that was generally then accepted. And they felt that you were being an honest broker, and with fair dealing, they, their respect for you would, would develop, and the relationship is very organic, it develops. And it was the same, I mean, with the Portuguese press in, in Madeline's case, initially the, the immediate response of um, some of the early press officers that were sent down was, was not to talk to the Portuguese press because they seemed to be hostile even then. It was their country, for goodness sake. And one of the first things I did was I went and said, right, who speaks English? And four hands went up. I said, right, you, you play straight with me, I'll play straight with you. You can come on all the trips, you can do this, this, and this. And they were open-mouthed because it, it, it's, it's not rocket science. But by being inclusive, open, and honest all the time, never ever say anything that could come back and bite you, they will stay on board and, and do what they can to help. Alas, this has got to be our last question because this woman's going to be cleared for a special emergency Heather Mills press conference. <laughs> well, you may laugh, but she's had a struggle. And she's come over to defend herself against terrible accusations. I think one of the things is getting grand and pretentious and starting to say fancy stuff. And the other is whinging. What else do you think can ruin? I, 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 I'm interested in... I mean, Carol's point is interesting. I think there's always... There are a number of people out there that there are stories the media are completely well aware of. But they're perceived to be celebrities or personalities with collateral for sale. So they are never, um, how should you say, destroyed by the media. Because they're in the sun's lead line box. And I just, just, in case. I, I just put it into the tabloid media. I think, really, I think they are useful to yeah. be kept in the public limelight for sales rather than killing yeah. off the golden goose. And that's more the case now. It certainly was, certainly was the case through Hollywood. Um, but it's more the case now that, that people are just slightly frightened of killing off a personality that can generate sales in a diminishing market. Mary? Well, I, I agree with that. I think a lot of material is suppressed, and I think there are various reasons for it. One is that it's a very collusive world. You know, whether you're doing celebrity interviewing or, in some cases, political interviewing, you know, certainly if you're a political editor, you have to go back just as you'd have to go back to the publicist and so on, which gives them quite a lot of power because if you write something fantastically disobliging about Jeff Hoon, then he may not give you another interview. Personally, I don't think, you know, I, I, I am for stuff being in the public domain. Occasionally you do withhold stuff. You know, I was debating whether to write something yesterday because, you know, if you feel that somebody's future hangs on it or you might be impinging on people's real lives and prospects, then I think you have to be sort of quite cautious and I think journalists ought to have a level of self-censorship. But I think a lot of stuff is kept out of the papers by mutual arrangement, which isn't a good thing, or through fear, actually. I mean, I was interested in what Clarence had to say. You know, you, for, for excellent reasons, have gone down a litigious route, and that clearly makes the media uh, think long and hard about not doing the wrong things, but not in your case, but elsewhere, occasionally not doing the right things. You know, Jonathan Aitken, Guardian, etc. So, be warned. They've got stuff on you which they're not running 
because they've got a sort of investment in you and you're all national treasures. But it could come out <laughs> any minute. So thank you very much in alphabetical order, Rachel, Mary, Mark and Clarence. Thank you, EI, for this wonderful event. And um, thank you, HarperCollins. <laughs>